1: Welcome to Special Edition, a weekly look at the issues in the news and the personality shaping the stories.
0: I'm Paula Dagnan. This week, another Odyssey I'm Listening presentation, this time on LGBTQ plus mental health during Pride Month. Starting us off, Scranton Mayor Paige Gebhardt Cognetti talks everything from city projects to preparing for a new baby. Mayor Cognetti, always a pleasure to catch up with you. Let's start with the Mayor's Conference. What was it like? Who did you run into? And I know that there was a lot of talk about what Scranton is doing.
4: We were at the U.S. Conference of Mayors in Columbus, Ohio. I went in a rental van with the Mayor of Allentown, the Mayor of Lancaster, and the Mayor of Williamsport. We did a stop in each city to see what we're all doing with our American Rescue Plan dollars. See what type of investments we're making. We stopped and met with Lieutenant Governor Davis in Harrisburg so that he and Governor Shapiro are aware of all the ways that mayors are rebuilding Pennsylvania with the direct funds that we got from the American Rescue Plan. Then we were able to meet with the, the mayor of Harrisburg and then go on to Pittsburgh and meet with Mayor Ganey there and see the lead line replacements that they're doing in Pittsburgh. So there's a variety of projects, a variety of different ways that mayors and cities in Pennsylvania are rebuilding and increasing quality of life in our cities. And it's really, it's enabled by the American Rescue Plan, which, you know, is a piece of legislation that was, was put forward through the Biden administration. The president knows how critical it is that cities and localities get direct funds because we know the solutions that we need on the ground in places like Scranton. It's very important that we're able to tailor programs in the cities as opposed to, you know, a lot of times we have to go through the state and, you know, we, we have great partners at the state, but that's another level of bureaucracy to go through. It means that dollars can't get out fast. And we're able to move a lot quicker with these direct funds. So it was great to tell that story across the Commonwealth, get to Columbus, talk to our friends there. We had a great time with all the mayors. They were jealous of our our road trip, and I think we might have spurred some future road trips with some other mayors. I know next year the conference will be in Kansas City, Missouri, and the Iowa mayors are already talking about not doing a road trip like we did here in Pennsylvania.
0: Well, I'm glad you caught up with Mayor Slaughter because the first year he wanted to send you good wishes when he was there and you weren't there and everybody finally got together. So that's good. Everybody's getting together. And speaking of getting together, what kind of information did you get that you brought back here to Scranton that maybe we may see implemented?
4: Yeah, we always find different ideas to learn from each other. You know, Mayor Slaughter and I have a close working relationship and are always on the phone with each other trying to not reinvent the wheel right the last thing we need to do is start from scratch if Williamsport has done something if Scranton has done something we want to share those things with each other so that we can all move farther faster and that's the case at the national level as well and I was talking with the mayor of Hartford with a variety of different youth programs that that he's been able to do in Hartford. Those are really important. There's some great small business programs that the mayor of Madison, Wisconsin is doing. Um, She'll actually be here in Scranton in uh, early August. We're hosting the Mayor's Innovation Project here. So we'll have, that's August 9th, 10th, 11th. We'll have dozens of mayors from across the country right here in Scranton doing the same thing, kind of stealing each other's ideas. And the mayor of Madison will be here, so we'll learn more about her small business pieces. I also caught up with the CEO of Amtrak and was talking with him and his team about, you know, the corridor ID that we have uh, applied for, hoping that this fall we'll get good news here in in Northeastern Pennsylvania that we'll have a, a, you know, a passenger rail link back up to New York sometime this decade. So it's definitely an opportunity to meet with other mayors. It's also a great opportunity to connect with, you know, high level folks from um, different companies and different um, federal
0: agencies. I was going to ask you about Amtrak and find out if you had any new information on that. And is that something that, again, there are other cities out there that do have things like that implemented and in place. So were you getting feedback from them on that after talking to Amtrak?
4: It's really important that we go to these, these different conferences and, and meet each other so we understand what other cities are doing with their large infrastructure projects. No one has been awarded one of these big corridor for, with Amtrak yet, but it's good to connect with other cities that are in the mix. And if, you know, hopefully we do get that award in October, we'll be able to work not just, you know, across our region, which, of course, we'll, we'll need to work to get it sent you know, up and running, but also understanding what other regions are doing and different types of funding that they've been able to unlock. So it's just invaluable to be able to go to these places, see mayors from across the country, understand their challenges you know, after three and a half years, it's, it's, it's kind of flattering. Some people want to ask me questions, right? Like we've been doing some great stuff in Scranton and people want to hear about it. So it's great for me to be able to understand what I can take back. It's also great for the region. You know, we're really on the map from Williamsport to Scranton to Wilkes-Barre. You know, Northeastern Pennsylvania is really in the mix. It's important that we continue to talk about what in a great place it is to live here. It's great for investment for businesses. It's a great quality of life for families. The more that we're talking about that, not just in the region, but outside of the region the
0: more successful we're going to be in the long term. And you mentioned it. That was something else I was going to ask you about was the upcoming Mayor's Innovation Project summer meeting. Oh, so that's very exciting. There are over 100 mayors coming here? Yeah,
4: we'll have at least dozens of mayors here right in Scranton, August 9th, 10th, and 11th. And we'll be discussing a range of policy issues going on the coal mine tour, which is I'm probably the most, well, that or the, the Rail Riders game. Um, it's hard to say which of the two I'm most excited about. I do I do love the coal mine tour, um, but I'm also excited to see the Rail Riders. They're actually playing the Syracuse Mets, and um, we're hoping that Mayor of Syracuse will be able to make it down. It'll um, be really fun to watch that game together.
0: Excellent. And of course, there are so many other things that are coming about in the city of Scranton. And while you're here Talk about all of them. I mean, you have so many projects going on. You have the funding that's still happening. And of course, there's other things like the credit rating. So Mm -hmm. where do you want to start? Sure. So the credit
4: rating is a really big deal. The news, of course, came out on the day that a lot of things were happening in the world, including um, all of us having to stay indoors because of smoke. So, uh, you know, I want to make sure that people understand the the, uh, excitement that we have at the city here. The S&P, which is a credit rating rating agency, did upgrade the the city of Scranton's credit rating to investment grade, which, you know, sounds just like kind of a lot like financial mumbo jumbo, but it really does matter. It matters for investors. When they see Scranton, if we, you know, if we're going to market for any sort of, of bond, we're going to get a better price because people are going to feel more confident having our debt. Generally gives a little bit more certainty about the future of Scranton, that we are a city that is navigating challenges with uh, pragmatism and, and with a, a method that is conservative and, and really focused on fiscal health. So it's very important for, from an investment standpoint, and for you know quality of life in the city. Like you, you know, you don't junk bond status. That's not a cool thing to be. Investment grade is where you want to be. People of Scranton should be proud that their taxpayer dollars are being well spent, and that we're getting that credit from those rating ratings agencies. We feed um, feed them a lot of data, a lot of information. We work really hard as a team, building on work, of course, done over many years here in Scranton to get to get that rating where it is finally today. So very excited about that. There's so much that we're doing and we're so excited. We have one of our you know, outdoor pools just so far Westland Field pool is open. So we've got that. We've got two more that'll be coming online in addition to our splash pad that's already open, but we're not stopping there. We have three different parks that we're working on right now. I'm hoping that by kind of middle or end July, we'll have fully upgraded three different parks in the city. We've got six more projects like that coming up in the next couple of years. And that's again due to the American Rescue Plan, where we've been able to use funds from the Rescue Plan to to upgrade these parks. So it's very, very exciting what we're able to do with this and make sure that we're, you know, focusing on our kids and youth and recreation. And on, you know, different levels, we we have uh, walkability studies where um, the gentleman, Jeff Speck, who did this walkability study for our downtown about how we can make our downtown safer. So Ways that we might be able to redirect traffic, you know, maybe have uh, different traffic patterns, maybe fewer one-way streets, different lights might change. A lot of things that sound a little bit tough to, to get through, but a lot of other cities have done these things where it's actually safer, for example, to have stop signs, always stop signs in some places as opposed to traffic lights. The Walkability Study argues we have too much traffic lights downtown, which actually makes it less safe for people. You also get people who, you know, they jaywalk because they don't want to wait for the light. So there's a lot of different nuances to this. So we're really working on safety, how do we make the streets safer downtown? And then we're applying for a grant right now to work on safer streets across the whole city. We've, right now we have a, a piecemeal process where we do send legislation to council after reviewing different things where we add a stop sign here. We should say no parking there, but it's all very piecemeal. takes a long time. We need, we need funding and we need a broader approach to making the, the streets safer in Scranton, but that's definitely a focus for us. The regional administrator for the EPA, the Environmental Protection Agency, will be doing an environmental justice roundtable. We want to really help our community understand what environmental justice is. I mean, you, you hear these buzzwords, you hear these things, but what does it really mean? We want that to be more of a conversation here because as you know, Northeastern Pennsylvania, you know, we're built on this distraction economy. As I talk to you today from actually at my house today, you know, we're built on a coal mine, right? I live on a coal mine. I have mine subsidence insurance for my home. We are inherently an environmental justice community. We've had to reinvent ourselves. We need to make sure that we're continuing to have a safe environment for our families and continue to Work on what that more sustainable future is. How do we use electricity better here in the city? We are the electric city. How are we, you know, electrifying our feet at the city? How are we doing more electric vehicle charging stations across the city so that we can enable more people to have electric vehicles in the future? All those different pieces you know, add up to the whole, the bigger picture about making sure that we're creating a sustainable environment for our children. So. There's so much going on, Paula, all the time, and it's really exciting, really, really a lot of fun. The team is so great. We've been able to just put together an incredible team, and it's fun every day,
0: which is great news. And the last time we talked, you mentioned about getting especially the college students Involved, has that been continuing to work? And now that you're talking about all of the environmental and how these different things work, are you getting more input from that particular group?
4: Yeah, we are working on that. We've got and we have a college student that um, is on our shade tree commission, so they're officially on the commission and working on the the different the foliage in the trees throughout the city, which is an important piece of quality of life and sustainability. And Unfortunately, this EJ Roundtable, Environmental Justice Roundtable, is not during um, kids' classes, so we we weren't able to have any students per se on this, but this is the beginning of many of those where we'll continue to engage students. We have a new Environmental Advisory Council. We have two professors from the University of Scranton that are on the council, so we'll be working with them to, to help have them bring in some of their students, hopefully, in the new school year to, to get that going. And things like the walkability study, the need for better, more walkable streets, a lot of that comes from the universities and the colleges saying, you know, we, our kids want to be able to bike, they want to be able to walk more safely to classes. That absolutely makes sense. We all want to be safer. How can we make that a reality? This is uh, the product of, of those conversations over the years.
0: Anything else that you haven't mentioned that? Because uh, there were a few things in there that I didn't even know about. So yeah, you, there's all, <laughs> there's all sorts of stuff that you have. You must have seen my list because you've just been rattling oh, off, good. and I'm I'm crossing <laughs> things off as I'm sitting here. No, well we're always, we're always
4: doing so many things, but I think I think that safety piece is really really important. I think when we, environmental justice is safety, right? Having, making sure that, that not only we're, we're transitioning to, you know, a hybrid of our, our kind of our current energy, but then looking toward the future of a, of a, a more sustainable energy future. That, that's safety. That's safety for our kids. That's more sustainability for the planet. But there's the safety in the current day. We are working really hard on our rental housing. We want, we will be inspecting more rental housing and holding bad landlords accountable really really important we don't want kids living in housing that's unsafe we have to have had to change our program that way we've really boosted that up just from a general housing we know that housing is an issue all across the country there's basically just a housing shortage everywhere i don't know any mayor who's not dealing with it we're trying to figure out how we can build more housing of all levels, right? All market rate is great. We need more affordable. We need more senior housing. We know all these things. So we're trying to figure out how we encourage that. Uh, There's actually legislation in front of council right now that does speak to that. It lowers our permit fees in the city, which we're hoping will help small projects. We want want people to not have our permit fees be a barrier to them working on their home and making it safer and increasing their home value. We also want to encourage you know, economic development and making sure that we're continuing to attract those bigger projects as well. And that includes housing. So we're, we're, we're trying to attack all of these things from multiple angles, trying to cut red tape, trying to show that we don't just sit back and say like, yep, trans great, you should invest. Like, No, we're, we're listening. We're understanding. We're trying to figure out where the pain points are. We're trying to eliminate limit those pain points while also keeping things really secure and, and have high standards with our code enforcement. And then, of course, in terms of public safety, you know, we can, I'm sure I could, you know, argue this with my fellow mayors from the region, but yeah, you know, Scranton PD, Scranton Fire, we're, we just, we have the, the best of the best in this region, if not the state right here in Scranton. So we continue to figure out how to support police and fire more Make sure that they have the modern tools that they need to continue to grow and learn and train, and uh, just the the big piece there is, is safety, the safety of our residents and the safety of our personnel.
0: Then we have to ask Mayor Cognetti, how are you feeling? <laughs> good,
4: good, feeling good. But yeah, I'm 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 pretty ready to. Uh, to not be pregnant anymore. I'm not going to, I'm
0: not going to sugarcoat it, Paula. <laughs> what have you got? Like, what did you tell me? Six weeks about? Six weeks or so. Yeah. Yeah. I wouldn't, I, it's been great. I like being pregnant. It's a nice,
4: beautiful thing, but I'm. it's getting hot outside. I'm pretty ready. <laughs> and
0: I'm sure you're not going to slow down any.
4: No, the, the, we'll have that mayor's innovation conference just about 10 days after I have this
0: little baby girl. So
4: she and she and my mom will be with me at the conference and we'll just We'll make it work. Well, Paula, I just uh, always appreciate talking with you and the opportunity to talk about what we're doing here in Scranton, opportunity to talk about um, the great partnerships we have uh, across our region with, with the other mayors. You know, Mayor, Mayor Brown, Mayor Lombardo, they weren't on the trip, um, but always always working with them. Mayor Max, you know, across, across the road in Dunmore. We really have a strong group of, of local leaders in Northeastern Pennsylvania right now. It's good for us, you know, for ourselves just personally to be able to call each other But it's really good for our cities because we're able to help each other, whether it's in emergencies or mapping out some of these long-term projects for our different cities.
0: Well, you still get together with all the mayors here locally, mm-hmm. too, right? Yep,
4: yeah, we have our northeastern Pennsylvania mayors. George Brown has has really been the, the glue there and kept us meeting on a quarterly basis. So, uh, I do think there's there's a meeting at some point this summer. Uh, we'll all be getting together and talking about you know a variety of things. And we're we're really proud of the work we're able to do together. We're applying for an electric vehicle charging grant as a, a mix of municipalities from the region. So that's like a Actual tangible thing that we've done together, we're trying to use our relationships and the the regional approach to some of these larger grants that are available at the federal level. I think it's easier, you know, the the grantor if they get an a application from a whole region as opposed to just one city, and then it's easier for us because we're not we're not all trying to do the same thing. We don't have all well, have people that are trying to do the same thing. We're working together.
0: Always a pleasure to catch up with you when you have all of the exciting things that are coming. We like to let everybody know about them. Wonderful. Thank you, Paula. Always good to talk to you. And that includes baby too. It's always a pleasure to catch up with Scranton Mayor Paige Gebhardt Cognetti about city projects, positive credit ratings, and preparing for a new baby. Coming up next on Special Edition, another Odyssey I'm Listening presentation. This one focusing on LGBTQ mental health during Pride
5: Month. Don't go away. This is Odyssey's I'm Listening. I'm David O'Leary. I'm Listening is our commitment to inspire more conversations about mental health. Talk really does have the power to save lives. June is Pride Month and today we're talking with Nicholas Turton from the Trevor Project founded in 1998 the Trevor Project is a non nonprofit focused on suicide prevention efforts among lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgender, queer, and questioning youth. They offer a toll-free telephone number where confidential assistance is available and provided by trained counselors, along with a ton of other resources. Nicholas, great to have you with us. Thanks for joining us.
6: Well, thank you so much for having me, David. It's great to be here.
5: You know, the Trevor Project does the survey every year, has for, for many years, and the two 2023 version of it, the U.S. National Survey on the Mental Health of LGBTQ Young People has been recently released. This is an annual survey of about 28,000 LGBTQ youth across the U.S. Can you talk a little bit about some of the takeaways from the most recent edition of this survey?
6: Our 2023 US national survey, which as you mentioned, represents the experiences of over 28,000 LGBTQ young people ages 13 to 24 across the US. This is our fifth annual survey and for the fifth consecutive year, the data we found really underscore that anti-LGBTQ victimization really contributes to the higher rates of elevated suicide risks reported by LGBTQ young people. Mm -hmm. And we also found that a lot of young people who wanted access to mental health care are unable to get it. So as an organization, um, you know, this is something that we're really concerned about and continue to work toward addressing.
5: LGBTQ youth, they're not necessarily inherently prone to suicide risk because Mm -hmm. they are LGBTQ youth or or because of their gender identity or sexual orientation, but rather because of how they are stigmatized in society because of some of these other obstacles and so forth that they have to uh, contend with kind of on a, on a daily basis. Is that a fair statement?
6: Yeah, absolutely. And you're exactly right, David. It's not anything inherently prone to who they are as their, with their identities as being LGBTQ young people, but exactly right as sort of how they are confronted and faced with different challenges of being victimized being discriminated against or stigmatized because of different things that we're seeing in society so um the top line i do want to share is you know we did find that 41 percent of lgbtq young people seriously considered attempting suicide in the past year Mm. and then for young people who identify as transgender non-binary and or people of color reported higher rates than their peers as well. So um, there are disparities within our own community as well. And so um, I think what's really important is our data is also very intersectional and allows us to understand where the disparities are, even within our own community.
5: You know, we've learned so much about suicide uh, warning signs and prevention, yet we have these markedly higher rates in the LBGTQ community and have for for some time as you noted especially in certain age groups and and genders
6: obviously our own mental health as humans it's impacted and compounded by so many variables and factors within our own experiences and so for lgbtq young people um, particular, you know thinking about being the a young person you know, We're seeing a lot of news these days, and what a lot of experts are saying, we're being faced with a youth mental health crisis that has been exacerbated by the, the COVID-19 pa- pandemic. And so, one, that's kind of where we're seeing right now, just like an ongoing youth mental health crisis. Mm. Then, particularly for the young people that we serve at the Trevor Project, thinking about layering that on. On top of that, with um, being an LGBTQ person in in America today, there is a lot of stigmatization. There is a lot of discrimination that we're seeing across the country, particularly in the form of different types of rhetoric. And then now even really tangibly, a lot of legislation that specifically targets um, LGBTQ identities.
5: Specifically, I want to ask about access to care, because that's kind of problematic for all of us, even if you have insurance or you have resources, sometimes finding just health care in general, but certainly mental health care can be really, really difficult. It can be especially difficult for those in the LGBTQ community, especially youth. Can you talk a little bit about why that might be?
6: What's really fascinating is when we're doing our national survey, we also ask young people, you know, for those who wanted access to mental health care, but were unable to get it, what were the reasons why and so actually on our survey site um, we have the top 10 reasons why young people who wanted this access to mental health care weren't able to get it and so the top reasons were um, actually i feel like all relate to this sort of overarching theme of sort of stigma around mental health and so Mm -hmm. 47 percent of lgbtq young people who wanted health care but couldn't were afraid to talk about their mental health concerns with someone else and then 40% said they didn't want to have to get permission from their parents or caregivers, possibly because they didn't want to have to bring that up or didn't know how to ask or for that support. And then another 40% said they're afraid they wouldn't be taken seriously. So these all kind of relate to having the sort of fear or the stigma of mental health um, you know, impact their access to care.
5: I'd be reluctant to draw too many parallels between... Um... You know, rates of how we talk about mental health and how we talk about suicide in recent years, versus how we talk about those in the LGBTQ community in recent years. But as a as a sweeping generalization, which I hate doing, but I'll say it anyway, it seems like we're able to talk about our mental health and about suicide a little more easily today than maybe say five, ten years ago, whatever. And it seems the same thing might be said of talking about the issues surrounding those in the LBGTQ com- community. You know, we have TV shows, we have movies that make it sort of okay to talk about this in a way that we weren't able to just a few years ago. Would you agree with that? And is that making it easier for uh, those in the, in the community to, to access care and to talk about their mental health?
6: You're definitely right. We're seeing so much more representation and mm-hmm. visibility of LGBTQ identities and within our communities across a variety of different spheres of society. You know, you pointed to things like maybe media, film, TV, and even some uh even politically we're seeing um so many candidates and folks who are elected officials who are part of the community. So, I definitely know that visibility and representation it's having a positive impact in You know, it's definitely a stride toward progress for thinking about the rights and sort of the affirmation of our communities. But that also, that visibility really needs to be paired with more tangible things, sort of like systemic investment in mental health care that's competent, culturally competent mental health care for our young people, as well as making sure that policies and legislation are being supportive of our communities as well.
5: Yes, legislation. Can, can you talk a little bit about um, recent proposals, passages of, of anti lgbtq bills and legislation? I, I saw a thing from the White House yesterday, and I'm, I I want to say I'm exaggerating this number, but I may be lowballing it, that there was a number, 400 filed in a single day, many directed at kids, talking about bills and legislation, anti lgbtq bills and legislation. Talk a little bit about what that does uh, how that's sort of part of the problem here
6: at the trevor project our advocacy team has been tracking and following really closely to the bills and proposals being introduced and as of right now we are tracking over 600 plus anti-lgbtq bills that have been introduced in 2023 alone that in itself is record-breaking and you know expanding on sort of an already growing number of anti-lgbtq bills that we saw last year so it continues to break records each year and this year in 2023 a majority of those bills and policies they specifically target transgender and non-binary young people and they particularly target them in almost every sphere of their life whether it's in getting access to healthcare. Um, being able to identify um, uh, for who they uh, are in schools, um, and then even being able to um, prohibiting access to simple things that, you know, we all view as just simple luxuries is like being able to access a bathroom. And so there's a lot of things that are re- we find very concerning and, you know, recent policy and legislation that we've seen. Um, there's a lot of outcry that we've seen in places like Florida recently where they expanded curriculum censorship bills that we call within the movement as don't say gay bills, basically prohibiting any conversations of sexual orientation or gender identity, expanding it all the way from Kate all the way to 12th grade, which um, those policies, they're really vague and create this chilling effects because, you know, if you're not able to talk about, LGBTQ identities in curriculum and in, in classroom discussions. Does that mean I can also can I talk about my own identity as being queer or gay or even a, a teacher being able to share personal like their own lives as mm-hmm. a maybe a part of the community and being there to support a young student who might be navigating or struggling with their own identity? So mm-hmm. um, there's a lot of things that we're seeing happening in, across the country and. I also want to follow up with that, that how that's impacting the mental health of our young people. Our latest survey has found that nearly one in three LGBTQ young people said that their mental health was poor most of the time or always due to anti-LGBTQ policies and legislation. And when you pair that with some of the anecdotes that we're hearing from our 24-7 Crisis line, our crisis counselors who are speaking or chatting or texting with young people who are experiencing mental health challenges, these um, debates about their own identities, about their own existence and what they are or aren't able to do in school or in public spaces, these types of policies of legislation are making the ways, and young people are raising them um, on our on our crisis calls as well. We are hearing those those anecdotes being had, and so. I think a lot of people assume that young people don't pay attention to politics but when they are becoming the wedge issue of um the current political climate they have no other choice in many ways than to pay attention and the young people are watching they are listening and hearing these debates and as having a really detrimental impact on their mental health
5: nicholas i, I want to sort of wrap up in the few minutes we have left on sort of a hopeful and, a, and an optimistic and a, and a positive note one of the things that trevor project <laughs> offers a number of ways for resources and ways for people to connect and also to recognize signs uh, to to perhaps reach out to or help someone who may be struggling in terms of suicide prevention or or warning signs. Talk a little bit about some of those resources that the Trevor Project makes available.
6: There is so much hope and a lot of optimism to be had. When we think about being able to be connected and to have resources available, you know, the Trevor Project, we obviously do provide our twenty-four-seven crisis services, where young people who are facing challenges or having a really difficult time can reach out to one of our trained counselors. And so, you know, we just point people to go to tre- the trevorprojectorg help and you can find all the different ways to connect with us via phone, Lifeline, text, or chat. But also on our website, um, for young people who just want to learn more, we have a wide variety of number of different digital resources to help both young people and the people who support young people in their lives. You know, we have a our own coming out guide, which, you know, if you are a young person struggling with navigating with your identity, you know, the coming out guide allows you to sort of better understand you know what a coming out process could look like for you and how to do it in a way that is best for your own safety we also have our own guides for you know being a guy being an ally to transgender and non-binary young people um for uh caregivers for parents for teachers um for coaches or counselors who might be working with trans young people and and are looking to get um Better educated about trans identities and what it means to support those young people. We have guides for that as well. Nice. I'd love to end on a positive note because you know, I think a lot of people might be struggling to think. You know, there's so much going on. You know, both you know at the national level, um, maybe you're living in a state where you're seeing a lot of this anti-LGBTQ legislation, and we definitely encourage people to be advocates if they're willing to to do so. But I also want to just end off that, you know, we all can take a simple step uh, toward helping, you know, building a better and more affirming world for all LGBTQ young people. Because our research shows, you know, at the Trevor Project, that having at least one accepting adult in the life of an LGBTQ young person can reduce the risk of attempting suicide by up to 40%. Mm. And so my message to anyone listening is, you know, if you have a young person in your life, um, just be there be there, listen, offer support, and just be there. And I think, you know, that's such a simple thing to do, but it can have such a profound impact on the young people in our lives.
5: Boy, thank you for reminding us that there is hope. Nicholas, there, there really is. And reminding us about those protective factors of being someone supportive and positive in someone's life. You can have a, really have a tremendous impact. Nicholas Turton from The Trevor Project joins us this morning. It's okay to not be okay. We all know that the power of talk can save lives, and that's why we're here at Odyssey's I'm Listening, working to share resources for those who need to connect and heal and to share their own stories. You can find out more. Just search for I'm Listening on the Odyssey app. This is Odyssey's I'm Listening.
0: Call from mom. Answer it. Call silenced.
1: Instacart knows nothing gets between you and the game.
5: This is Odyssey's I'm Listening. Talk really does have the power to save lives. And I'm Listening is our commitment to inspire more talk about mental health and about suicide prevention and about taking care of our mental health the way we take care of our physical health. I'm Odyssey's David O'Leary. I'm joined by Dr. Christine Moutier, who is the Chief Medical Officer for the American Foundation for Suicide Prevention. She also happens to be a leader in the field of suicide prevention as well as someone who can speak firsthand about the devastation that comes from losing someone to suicide. She also speaks with a little bit of authority on suicide risk and prevention and how suicide affects not just individuals, but communities and and, and families and uh, faith groups and colleagues and and so many other communities. Uh, Dr. Moutier, it's great to see you. Thanks for being with us.
2: Thanks so much, David. I certainly consider you a friend um, and a a amazing friend in the fight against suicide. And it's just a pleasure to be here with you.
5: It is Pride Month. Why is suicide, as well as depression and other mental health issues, a particular concern for those who are in the LGBTQ community?
2: The first thing I want to say about that is with regard to any population, including the LGBTQ community, it's not one's identity itself that makes you suffer or puts you at risk. It's the experience that one has based on their identity um, in the society and in the world and the culture that we live in. And I also think about the fact that LGBTQ people have been marginalized discriminated against for millennia. And so even though things are changing, some in the right direction um, in terms of an understanding of identity as, as such, not, not about choice, not about, um, you know, all the, all the kind of myths of preference
5: and whatnot. Sure.
2: Right. So I think about that, that, that historical backdrop, because if a, if a young person is, coming to realize or getting in touch with their own sense of queer identity, depending on the family they live with, the home environment, the larger community, maybe the faith community, all those things can influence what they even find acceptable to think about themselves. So the process of coming out, transitioning, um, let alone the actual you know, conversations and changes medically or socially that that can occur, all of that, presents challenges for individuals who who have, like all human beings, have their own backstory in terms of potential genetic loading, family history of depression, anxiety, trauma. You know, all of those things that we know are general risk factors for suicide can be sort of loaded into the background for anyone who goes through anything, mm-hmm. including for queer people who are who are experiencing, you know, coming to terms with their own identity and then coming out and then the experiences they have in the world around them.
5: I, I think that is a huge point. I want to make sure I understand it. So I'm going to restate it. You can, you can keep me honest. It's not because they're in the LGBTQ community that they may be at elevated risk for suicide. It is because of what they have to go through by being members of this community. Yes. circumstantially that that may place them at higher risk.
2: That's right. and yeah. and I and I think that is true for, you know, if you look at any group with elevated suicide rates of either you know, suicidal ideation attempts or um, tragically, in some cases, death by suicide, those people groups who have those higher risks, these include some racial ethnic background, American Indian, Alaskan Native. and and actually interestingly, middle-aged white males are also among um, a higher risk category of of, uh, folks. So there are all sorts of different reasons that relate to those, those discriminatory experiences, but also when there's a culture that puts shame around help seeking and specifically mental health treatment, those are additional risk factors that can come to bear.
5: You know, it seems a little ironic and a little sad that at a time when it appears that we're learning more and more about causes and prevention of suicide and just mental health in general, it's it's troubling to see what appears to be targeting of specific populations that it, it would appear seem to be making the problem worse for those populations.
2: I, I couldn't agree with you more. And I know it's a complicated world right now in terms of beliefs and but I, I would just make a make a pitch or a plea to to all of your listeners, to put you know any uh, larger agendas aside and just think about the people in our own lives, your family members, your friends, your coworkers. Everyone faces challenges. Everyone has mental health to address and to manage. Some some of us also have mental health conditions, which are an additional. I, I view it as a sort of a responsibility, but one that can be done, just like a physical health condition is something to take care of. And so, you know, to try to just get down to the real basics of these are people we care about, we love, who are in our lives, and, um, and some of them maybe even unbeknownst to us may be struggling with issues of either mental health or trying to figure out their own identity from an LGBTQ standpoint. So just having that awareness that our behavior makes a big difference for the people around us, mm. giving them permission and inviting, in fact, encouraging them to speak about their internal experiences can be incredibly helpful. You know, there's this, there's this group called the Family Acceptance Project, led by Dr. Caitlin Ryan, that studied behaviors in the home that led to very different outcomes for LGBTQ youth, Mm -hmm. Um, you know, so for their children or for their siblings. And they broke it down to very concrete, specific behaviors that were ultimately behaviors that either affirmed the person as a human being and as a queer um, individual, or that, Um, showed disrespect. And so there were like literally a hundred behaviors that they studied and night and day different outcomes in terms of um, even things like becoming homeless, um, risk of HIV AIDS, Mm -hmm. but uh, legal issues, academic problems, but also risk of suicidal behavior, night and day difference, based on those concrete behaviors happening in the home.
5: And I bet some of those behaviors are very subtle and very nuanced. It's like the language that we use and what we would consider little things that are very impactful to your point. Yes,
2: yes. yes. I think making an effort and using someone's identified pronouns, there's research actually that some of which AFSP funded Mm -hmm. that shows that using correct pronouns for an individual actually reduces their odds of having suicidal thoughts. And so again, these are complicated matters, but if again, putting yourself in the shoes of someone who on a larger scale, on a macro level in society, if you think about my identity may put me at risk for, you know, violence Discrimination, problems getting any number of things employment, housing, relationship stress. But now in my own home environment, I have a parent or a sibling who is using my pronouns, introducing me to mentors in the queer community, requiring other family members to treat me with compassion, love, and respect. Mm. You know, those are protective experiences uh, for a young person.
5: Yeah. Those protection factors, I mean, we've talked about them in terms of suicide prevention, they're protective factors for your health. You get a good night's sleep, you exercise a little bit, you're going to lower your risk for, yes. you name it, whatever the, the, the physical health issue. And these are emotional uh, health issues and mental health um, uh, protective factors. I guess I would imagine that when you are, uh, when you hear this kind of language in the home, it affirms that you're in a safe place and, and, and you're in a, in, a, in a good place. It's, it's, prote- it's a protective factor.
2: Yes, yes. And I think intersecting with wherever the person is in their own journey, which, you know, for young people may be intersecting them at some particularly vulnerable times because The job, the psychological milestone, the job of a teenager is essentially to establish their own autonomy, you know. And so it's a complicated time anyway, let alone if there is, you know, our opinions and differences about who that person, in fact, is becoming and who they are.
5: I I want to ask you how how to reach out to someone if you're concerned. There's a way to reach out.
2: Absolutely. And it's really to set up a private time so that there's a a space where they can optimally feel able to talk about potentially very private things that they're going through. You know, I think realizing that people are experiencing challenges at different times, they won't necessarily tell you that that's what's going on in their life, right? Depending on your relationship with them. So you have to use the little clues that kind of make your instincts say, gosh, they don't seem like themselves. What, what might be going on with them? So the first thing is just really trusting your gut instinct. Don't write it off that it's somebody else's job. I'm not trained as a mental health professional. You know, we use all kinds of excuses. I don't want to offend them. So what this approach looks like is really just establishing a safe, caring, supportive conversation. And so don't hesitate to use those words because if someone is struggling, remember the automatic instinct that we have as human beings, and I think this is actually a very primitive kind of primal instinct, is when we feel vulnerable, we withdraw and we put the boundaries up and we feel vulnerable. Mm -hmm. And as human beings, we have that big frontal lobe that gives us a, big experience of shame, vulnerability, fear. And so, as the supportive person, you need to actually say it. I'm here having this conversation with you because simply because I care and I want to support you and it's a judgment-free zone because I've been through stuff too. And it feels so counterintuitive because we're we all want to get into the fix it mode. It's just, you know, those of us who most of us are problem solvers. But the job, the task is really different here. It's simply showing that you care, that you're able to hear it and listen and not run away and not judge and mm-hmm. not minimize it. But just simply, you know, it's it's those active listening skills that most of us are so bad at that just really <laughs> hears what they're saying, even reflects back. Is this what I hear you saying? I want to be here for you. Tell me more about that. You know, those kind of phrases. Now, if the person is sounding hopeless, like they feel trapped in their circumstances or like they feel like they're a burden to others, those are indicators to me that they could be having thoughts of suicide. And so in those instances, I will ask, I will say exactly what the words they said. When you say this X, Y, and Z, when you say that, it makes me wonder if you're having thoughts of ending your life. And, and you have to zip it because oftentimes our own nerves are going in these conversations and just listen. Mm-hmm. And again, if you're not sure what to do, you can always call 988 for some guidance, but the odds that they are imminently, immediately at risk for suicide are actually very low because now they're talking about it. Opening up actually feels like a relief to people who mm-hmm. are experiencing suicidal thoughts. And I think- you know, again, offering to, um, to help them find some professional help, I think would be a, an important step to take if a person is having suicidal thoughts.
5: I'm so glad you mentioned 988. And if you are struggling, or if you love someone who your you're concern may be struggling, that is the number to call 24 hours a day, seven days a week. There is care on the other end of that line. 988 is the number. In the in the short time we have left, I, I, I want to sort of look for hope and optimism here, and it does seem, you know, we're we're talking about suicide and mental health in a way that we weren't even five ten years ago, and and we're talking about the LGBTQ community in a way that we weren't a couple of years ago. Notwithstanding that there's targeted legislation and and and, and other issues that are that are challenging for those in that community, but do you do you see signs of of hope?
2: I certainly do, and I think, you know, to be in the field of suicide prevention, I probably have to be a little wired with some optimism. But it's Mm -hmm. also based on science and data that we see dialogue happening like never before. We see people reaching out for mental health support and treatment like never before. And you know, I look at uh, the younger generation, particularly in the LGBTQ community. There is advocacy and sense of community together and with allies that is very strong now. These are more common and prevalent experiences of identifying with an LGBTQ um, type of identity. So in in that generation, I do think as they grow up, um, there's going to be greater and greater understanding that these are normal parts of being human and Mm -hmm. Um, hopefully some of the stigma will, will continue to diminish.
5: Dr. Christine Moutier is the chief medical officer for the American foundation for suicide prevention. It is always wonderful chatting with you. Thank you so much for being with us today. Appreciate it.
2: Thank you, David. Take care.
5: And this is I'm listening from odyssey to share your story or to find others search for I'm listening on the odyssey app.